All right, we are back. Uh, you know, a lot of people are focusing in on the um, the terrible situation in Gaza, and and I think rightfully pointing out, in spite of the um, allegations that to do so is anti-Semitic, that the oppression of people in Gaza and the West Bank is certainly contributing to the, well, at minimum, the instability of the situation there. And I don't feel like taking a turn back into that. But but speaking of instability, political instability, uh, we would note that something like 6 million people have fled Venezuela under Nicolas Maduro. I'm looking at a, at a stat that says 7, 7 million people have fled the chaos in Venezuela uh, since Maduro became president in 2013. Apparently 600,000 Venezuelans have arrived in the U.S. And if you look around Latin America, it's, it's not just Venezuela, it's a mess. The Peronista candidate down in Argentina apparently uh, won the runoff and will um, face a libertarian challenger in that country, uh, despite the fact that his party has, again, as it's done so many times in the past, trashed the economy of the country. Anyone who's ever seen the wonderful musical Evita should note that uh, the chaos down there in uh, the land of the Rio de la Plata did not did not end with Evita or her husband, Juan. Some of you will no doubt remember that the country circa 1975 just decided, ah, what the hell, and brought Juan Perón back out of exile to become the president again. Anyway, st- political instability around the world is just, it, it's causing refugee crises everywhere you look. And we'd like to think that that's going to get better, but don't see a whole lot of cause for optimism. Well, here's one bit of optimism, although oddly it comes in the form of an obituary. Uh, apparently, a couple of weeks back, the Finnish statesman Marti Atasari passed away at age 86. Atasari was the Finnish president from 1994 to the year 2000, but he's best known as a peacemaker. Among his many achievements were securing Namibian independence from South Africa in the 1970s, negotiating Serbia's withdrawal from Kosovo in the 1990s, and helping disarm the Irish Republican Army in 2000. Atasari believed that every conflict had a resolution, but said mediators couldn't take the credit. The only people that can make peace are the parties in the conflict, he said in his 2008 Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech. Just as they are responsible for the conflict and its consequences, shows should they be given responsibility and recognition for the peace. Boy, we're sorry he's gone. That's a guy we could could certainly use now and as forever. I think at this point we'll take a a turn into the sad world of big tech, and and we, we do think of it as a sad world. We need to comment on the manifesto recently issued by celebrity venture capitalist Mark Andreessen. Writing in Bloomberg, Lizette Chapman noted that in a techno-optimist manifesto that ricocheted throughout Silicon Valley and the tech industry, Andreessen excoriated technology gradualists and argued that if we're going to fix what's wrong in the world, rapid innovation is the way to do it. Andreessen, of course, is a true believer, and he takes his fans from the days of the hunter-gatherers to the distant future celebrating technological achievements from agriculture to nuclear fusion. Well, excuse me, that's not quite accomplishment yet. And artificial intelligence on AI especially. Andreessen is adamant that no regulation should stand in the way. Fortune magazine noted that in a world filled with 
warnings that technology should slow down, Andreessen unapologetically said it should go faster, pointing to, quote, a belief in the power of humans, unquote. We are, said Andreessen, quote, the apex predator. The lightning works for us. In his manifesto, he put forth an enemies list of people that need to be uh, looked at as well as exactly that, enemies of progress. Among them, environmentalists. Axios noted that his enemies list uh, includes many ideas that have been the focus of discussion in business and technology for the past few years, including sustainability, tech ethics, and trust and safety. Noting that Andres is not actually against trust, but his attacks provide cover for those who are happy to dispense with ethics and risk management. Jeff John writing in Fortune said Andreessen himself should be pretty aware of what happens when tech is allowed to run amok. This is a guy whose firm launched a $4.5 billion crypto fund last year. Now with the industry beset by fraud, there is a strange absence of crypto in Andreessen's far-ranging vision. Someone named Noah Smith, writing in No Opinion, and by the way, I'm getting all this from a summary in the Week magazine, said, I'm a dogged techno-optimist, but Andreessen's techno-optimism is so intense that it, that it puts my own in the shade. He says techno-progress gives us choices, and that's a good thing. He's also right about the perils of degrowth, which is a buzzword for those who have a zero-sum worldview that assumes progress will destroy the natural world. Let's pause a moment and take a look at some of that, shall we? Before we take that deep dive, let's, let's do a little uh, miscellaneous complaints about tech, which I think should be aired. Writing in The Atlantic, Amanda Mole said, please, just bring back the cashiers. Said Amanda Mole, the self-checkout lane is broken. When those despicable little kiosks first started popping up across the country, the sales pitch was the checkout lines would disappear. You could scan your stuff, plunk it in a bag, and you're done. But anyone who's been in a grocery store recently, notes Amanda Mole, knows that that's hardly how this process actually goes down. Saying, quote, you still have to wait in line, only to be bombarded with bleats and flashes when you fail to set a purchase down in the right spot. Then you must locate the usually lone employee charged with supervising all the finicky kiosks. It's easy to understand why retailers are seduced by self-checkout. The average four kiosk setup costs around $125,000. Expensive, yes, but cheaper than employing humans who get sick, ask for raises, and want things. But with a skeleton crew left manning the checkout, it's no wonder that shoplifting has skyrocketed. Some retailers have begun hiring back humans to help shoppers or to deter thieves. It's a tacit but necessary admission that kiosk technology just isn't good enough to support the level of autonomy that stores wish they could have. Amazon's experimental no-checkout-at-all convenience stores have not caught on either, to which she summarizes by saying, running a supermarket requires a human touch. And I, I think it certainly makes a point that if you've got no employees in the store, you're opening the door for the massive looting we've seen here, there, and everywhere. A couple of weeks ago, 50 masked criminals swarmed a Los Angeles shopping mall and stole nearly $300,000 worth of luxury handbags and clothing from a Nordstrom's. The, the thieves attacked a security guard with bear spray, then grabbed easily resellable items from hangers and display cases. 
Evidently, a union representing the LAPD officers blamed the spike in smash-and-grab raids on the county's elimination of cash bail for people charged with low-level nonviolent offenses, saying it encourages re-offending. And it isn't just a U.S. phenomenon, by the way. Writing in The Independent, Chris Blackhurst says that Britain is in the grip in a retail crime frenzy. From box stores in London to tiny shops in villages, looters are running riot, bursting in and grabbing whatever they can on an almost daily basis. And these aren't teenagers pocketing a lipstick or a beer. The thieves of today are making a career of it, and they'll be putting the stuff up for sale on the internet by day's end. The scale of the theft is staggering. Every single day through June of this year, the co-op chain recorded almost a thousand crimes across its 2,500 outlets ranging from pilfering to violent assault. And weighing in on this matter, the Wall Street Journal notes that with thefts rising, companies are launching full-scale probes of organized retail crime. Article by Inti Pacheco notes that in March, a loss prevention investigator employed by Home Depot at a store in Florida identified two people leaving a store carrying two cordless impact wrenches and a cordless die grinder. The investigator photographed their car and provided the information to law enforcement, which tracked the car to the home of Robert Dell, who ran a drug recovery program in St. Petersburg, Florida. Well, in a church in St. Petersburg, Florida. On the side, prosecutors say Dell also ran an organized retail crime ring. Police obtained details of Dell's eBay account, anointed liquidator, that's the name of his account, where he sold more than 10,500 stolen hardware items between 2020 and May 2023, which netted him about $1.5 million. He paid shoplifters about $5,000 to $10,000 a day for items and posted bond payments when they were arrested. The case highlights how experts have prioritized investigating resale operations at online marketplaces like eBay, Facebook, and Amazon, which they say make up a large portion of the surge in retail crime. So, there you have it. Uh, The law of unintended consequences strikes for uh, our efforts to automate retail. And we had an article here from August I've been sitting on that just makes me laugh. Apparently in France, it is said by someone named Maxime de Blasi writing in Marianne, that in a misguided attempt to save trees, the government of France outlawed paper receipts. Starting in August, French businesses must issue digital sales slips unless a customer specifically requests a printed version. The goal is to reduce waste. But the measure is an overreach that will harm consumers for an insignificant ecological impact. Many people rely on tangible receipts not only to double-check the charges on the way out of the store, but also to keep up with their accounts. This is especially true for the elderly, who are known to be the least likely to navigate email or text message receipts. Instead of making people feel guilty for using a tiny slip of paper, why not do something that will actually make a difference? Like forcing big manufacturers to cut back on plastic packaging. Unlike paper, which is the most recyclable and biodegradable of materials, much of the plastic consumers are saddled with ultimately ends up in the oceans killing marine species, even if it is ostensibly recyclable. A plastics ban that compelled companies to wrap their wares in truly recyclable materials would rapidly eliminate three-quarters of plastic waste produced in France. Sure, 
the products on our shelves would look less flashy, but I bet consumers would accept that trade-off, especially if they get to keep the receipt. Let's circle back and we'll look at how uh, technology is going to save the world. Uh, especially, of course, if Mark Andreessen gets his way and the government just steps back and, and, and says to these guys, sure, go ahead, let her rip. You know, I, do, I do feel a pang of regret when I read about these Silicon Valley laissez-faire capitalists to realize that, you know, back when I was a much younger man, I thought there was a great deal of, of, of merit in, in the writings of Ayn Rand. It was until I bumped into how truly psychopathic <laughs> these individuals really are. That sort of changed my thinking. I think we can all agree that green energy is probably a good idea on the balance, but uh, I was shocked to realize that according to the International Energy Agency, as many as 50 million miles of power lines need to be built or upgraded by 2040 to nearly double the size of the existing electrical grid. And right now, there are so many green projects underway worldwide that some 3,000 gigawatts of renewable energy enough to power 2.6 billion households for a year. Yes, let's use that number again. 2.6 billion households for a year is currently sitting idle, waiting to join power grids. But it can take up to five years to connect new power plants to the system, and the problems are myriad. Transformers and distribution lines need upgrades so they can handle the new proliferation of electric vehicle charging stations, Grids need to be fortified against the possibility of blackouts that extreme weather makes ever more likely. And the infrastructure fixes must be approved by local residents who often object to ever more power lines traversing their neighborhoods. Oh, and we have mentioned in this program more than once how it is that if we get another solar flare at the wrong time, it may knock out power grids and, and the internet and our satellites that operate the internet. If we get something like the Carrington event, which is the largest uh, known such eruption from the sun in the last couple of centuries. But what do you know? Um, people have looked back in time and discovered that uh, we've had way, way bigger solar storms than that in the past. Noted New Scientist magazine, the most powerful solar storm ever. Well, I don't know about ever, but maybe in the past 100,000 years may have hit the earth 14,300 years ago, according to records preserved in alpine tree trunks. It's unclear how much damage a similar storm might cause today, but electrical grids could theoretically be knocked offline for months and all satellites destroyed. In 2012, Fusa Miyake at Nagoya University in Japan discovered evidence in tree trunks of very powerful solar flares charged particles expelled from the sun that along with magnetized plasma and gamma rays make up solar storms. These flares, which date back many centuries, may have caused a spike in the level of radioactive form of carbon in trees. Since then, at least nine probable ancient solar storms called Miyake events, after you-know-who, have been discovered in this way. Apparently, Tim Heaton at the University of Leeds in the UK and colleagues have found evidence of solar storms almost twice as large as the next largest Miyake event in pine tree trunks in the southern French Alps. We don't know totally what would happen if a similar storm happened today, said Heaton. Some people think they'd be absolutely catastrophic, cause huge month-long blackouts to half the globe, and destroy the solar panels on our satellites and put them permanently out of action which frankly does sound like a bit of a problem, although I can't help but editorializing it would serve Elon Musk right, but 
that's just me. But uh, these scientists, by comparing tree rings and comparing a timeline when each tree lived, they dated a huge spike in carbon, 14 to 14... They did a huge spike in carbon-14 to 14,300 years ago. They also matched the spike to elevated levels of beryllium from, green, from Greenland ice cores, which is produced in a similar way to carbon-14. They note it's difficult to compare such a storm with anything in recorded history. The largest solar storm we have experienced, the Carrington event of 1859, sparked fires and induced currents in telegraph wires. But this one was small, so small compared with the Miyake events, that it wouldn't even register a blip in the radiocarbon record. So um, there's a problem for you. Meanwhile, not to be outdone by uh, Elon Musk, Amazon is now launching its series of prototype Kuiper satellites. Amazon, of course, hopes that its services will rival SpaceX's Starlink. Yes, these SOBs plan to put up tens of thousands of satellites around the Earth, so I guess that the people of the Democratic Republic of Congo will have access to Dude, Where's My Car 2? And, of course, video games. Some people are pointing out that all this is going to have a very bad effect on the environment because when you launch a pound of anything into space, you need to use 1,000 pounds of fuel. Article by Jeremy Sue, also in New Scientist, notes that the space race that is seeing SpaceX, Utilsat, and Amazon launch Thousands of satellites capable of providing internet services will carry a significant environmental cost. Edward Doughton at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, said his colleagues have found that the carbon footprint of each satellite constellation would be 14 to 21 times higher per internet subscriber than the emissions associated with land-based mobile internet. This is primarily because rocket launcher emissions like carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide, well, cause trouble. And it may be worse than that. When the researchers factored in additional rocket launch particles like black carbon or aluminum oxide, they calculated the carbon footprint per subscriber might increase to between 31 and 91 times that of land-based internet options. And astronomers have become alarmed at the fact that satellites are now outshining all but the brightest stars. In fact, a recently launched 64 square meter reflective antenna uh, it's, it has been found to be brighter than all but seven stars in the heavens, which to say the least represents a significant threat to ground-based astronomy. And among the other things that should make us wary of uh, the, the growing power of AI, we should note that um, it's energy hungry. The October 14th issue of New Scientist notes in an editorial that it is a strange coincidence that as humanity attempts to slash its carbon emissions, it's also rushing to develop a technology that could in theory consume an unlimited amount of energy. Dabbling in counterfactuals is a dangerous game, but you can picture a world in which, having chosen to start tackling climate change properly in the 1990s, we would just be wrapping up the gentle path to net zero emissions in time for an artificial intelligence boom fueled by green power. Instead, we find ourselves at risk of running a 21st century technology on a 20th century energy supply. If you live in the U.S., every time you use an AI model, about 20% of the electricity requirement will be produced by burning coal. That's because in the U.S., that's where 20% of our energy comes from. An explosive growth of AI makes this an even more pressing concern. 
According to one analysis, if Google chose to shift to an entirely AI-powered search business, its electricity consumption could rival that of some countries. The article accompanying this piece notes that uh, researchers at the Amsterdam School of Business calculated that if Google switched its whole search business to AI, it would end up using 29.3 terawatt hours per year, equivalent to the electricity consumption of Ireland. This is something to think about. And someone around Mark Andreessen probably should direct him to the New Yorker article from the October 30th issue of this year, piece by Elizabeth Colbert, noting that the raw materials for the world we built come at a cost, and that cost could increase dramatically in the future. And the article starts off with something that I was quite unaware of that I probably should quote from because it's interesting. Notice the piece. The town of Spruce Pine, North Carolina doesn't have a lot to say for itself. On its website, which features a photo of a flowering tree next to a rusty bridge, notes the town is conveniently located between Asheville and Boone. Asheville and Boone? Apparently so. According to the latest census data, it has 2,332 residents and a population density of 498 per square mile. The piece notes, though, that without spruce pine, the global economy might well unravel. Spruce pine, North Carolina's planetary importance follows from an accident of geology. Some 380 million years ago, during the late Devonian period, Africa was drifting toward what would eventually become eastern North America. The force of its movement pressed the floor of a Paleozoic sea deep into Earth's mantle, where, in effect, it melted. Over the course of tens of millions of years, the molten rock cooled to form deposits of exceptionally pure mica and quartz, which was then pushed back up toward the surface. In the 20th century, spruce pine's mica was mined to make windows for coal-burning stoves and insulation for vacuum tubes. In the computer era, it's the town's quartz that's critical. Silicon chips are essentially made of quartz, although that's a bit like saying that the Mona Lisa is essentially made of linseed oil. Manufacturing microchips is phenomenally complex and supremely exacting. The process generally begins with quartz's cousin, quartzite, which consists in large measure of silicon dioxide. Under very high heat and the presence of carbon, the quartzite gives up most of its oxygen. Then acid and a great deal more heat are applied until the silicon reaches a purity level of 99.9999999%, or as it's known in the business, nine nines. At this point, the silicon is ready to be fashioned into a boule or ingot that weighs upward of 200 pounds and consists of a single, perfectly aligned crystal. It is here that spruce pine's quartz comes into play. To form this pure crystal, silicon has to be heated in a special crucible to 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit. The crucible must be tough enough to withstand this temperature, and at the same time, it must have the right chemical composition so it won't introduce contaminants. The only substance that meets both these criteria is high-purity quartz, and the only spot where the right sort of quartz can be found is spruce pine, North Carolina. Spruce pine is so valuable as a Vancouver-based journalist, Vincent Beeser, observed in his book, The World in a Grain, that almost everything about it, outside of its purity, is a closely guarded secret. The company that owns the town's largest mine doesn't publish production figures. When contractors arrive to make repairs, they are reportedly let into the equipment in blindfolds. 
According to documents filed in a case that the company once brought against a former employee, it tries to divvy up contracting jobs so that no individual can learn too much, and for the same reason it purchases its supplies from multiple vendors. All this stealth, Ed Conway suggests in his new book, Material World, The Six Raw Materials That Shape Modern Civilization, is justified. There are a few cases where we are so utterly reliant on a single place, he writes. And curiously, he quotes an unnamed industry veteran who notes that someone flying a crop duster over spruce pine and releasing a very particular powder could end the world's production of semiconductors within six months. And boy, aren't you curious as to what be in that powder? I'm curious as to why that guy exposed that particular fact. Meanness, maybe. I don't know. Or stupidity. Yeah, one or the other. The piece does note that of the 10 largest corporations in the world, six are tech companies. In 2021, 50% of Americans said they spent more than half a day in front of a screen. And a recent survey found that kids in the U.S. devote almost seven hours a day to staring at pixels. Stats like these can produce the sense that matter doesn't matter all that much anymore. Conway thinks that this is an illusion and a dangerous one. Contemporary society continues to rely on raw materials like spruce pine's quartz taken from the earth. Indeed, extraction rates far from slowing keep accelerating. These days, Conway reckons humanity mines, drains, and blasts more stuff out of the ground each year than it did in the total during the roughly 300 millennia between the birth of the species and the start of the Korean War. This comes with immense consequences, both ecological and social, even if we don't attend to them. Interesting article goes on to talk about sand, concrete, iron, salt, copper, and of course also oil and natural gas, not to mention their offspring plastics, as things that we are going hell-bent for leather to develop, with, as she says, ecological and social consequences. Someone really does need to bitch slap Mark Andreessen. And shoot, I wanted to talk about carbon offsets and what a scam that's turning out to be, along with cryptocurrency and the the saga of uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, who has attracted the attention of Michael Lewis, the excellent writer, Mark Michael Lewis. But uh, that's going to have to wait for another show. As will a piece I'd like to discuss from New Scientist titled Seven Wonders of the Milky Way. Marvelous, marvelous little uh, story. But uh, I guess we have so little time, I'll just have to cite one genuinely cool thing that took place last month. I'm referring to the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft after seven years and three billion miles traveled through space. It's an amazing thing to imagine that we humans sent a space probe out to an asteroid, slapped the asteroid, took some chunks of it, extracted it, and brought it back to Earth for examination. It's amazing to think that we brought back pieces of comet and now asteroid. Uh, Bennu, the asteroid chosen, is especially interesting to humans because there is a very small chance, one in 2,700, that it might collide with we Earthlings in the year 2182. By examining its exact composition, scientists hope they'll be able to be better equipped to divert it off course if that becomes necessary. And you can bet your bottom dollar, that's a story we'll have more to say about in the future. But for now, we're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, who, if the truth be told, has been bitch slapped many times. But in all fairness, 
life's done it to me many times as well. I am the occasionally bitch-slapped Douglas Everett, and you've been listening to Radio Parallax. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.